0: So we are in chapter 6 of the book of Luke today as we continue in a series that we've entitled This is the Way. We're doing something a little different if you're our guest uh, than we normally do. We're doing an extremely long series and we are just walking through the life and ministry and work of Jesus as Luke recorded it. And uh, we're spending a good portion of this year literally going through the text uh, in the way that Luke organized it. He, he said he, we picked Luke because he said that he did his homework, he did his research, and he, after he did that, he put it together in an orderly fashion. And so we're, we're looking specifically through the lens of what did Luke consider orderly? Why did he write it the way he wrote it? What did he put in there? And what do we glean about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing? So we have uh, so far in the first five verses seen uh, some of what he's his introduction to the book in the pregnancies of John, uh, of John, the pregnancies of with John of 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 his mom and Jesus's mom. And we've also seen um, his birth. We've seen his baptism, which was kind of his coronation, not kind of. It was his coronation, as king of this kingdom. We've seen him discerning how he would go about attracting followers once he realized that was a part of his mission in the temptation in the desert. And we have seen him initiate his ministry efforts. And so... His move last week was to start inviting others to follow him, to become what are called disciples. That's a learner or an apprentice of a teacher or a rabbi in order to become like them. And so we've seen all this, and we've gleaned a lot. And I've tried to point that out to you each week. I won't re-preach the first few sermons, but point out to you what Luke is telling us about this kingdom that is so countercultural. But here in chapter 6, Luke does has Jesus, records Jesus doing three things. First, Jesus is now no more just gleaning about the kingdom. The bulk of this chapter is him teaching overtly now to his disciples that he's chosen what this kingdom is about and just how upside down it is from not just culture, but from religion and established religion as it was then. And I think we can learn a lot there. But he does a couple of other things before he does that teaching. First, he in no uncertain terms says that he, he just steps up and says, I am the new pivot point upon which you need to look in order to discern what God wants to do in the world. I am replacing what you have looked at, what your pivot point has been. Do you know what that has been? The Bible, the law, and the prophets. He, in no uncertain terms at the beginning of this chapter, is saying to his followers, you guys can now look at me. Look at me if you want to know what God says is good and godly. And he also, in this chapter, chooses from among his disciples, he chooses 12 of them to come a little closer to him for special assignment. So, let's get into it, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, pause, sorry. There's two Sabbath stories here, right here at the beginning. And this is where he's going to definitively, in a Jewish code kind of way, tell his followers, I'm the new pivot point. Just look at me. Just follow me. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees, remember them? We met them last week. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Okay. So in our 2022 sensibilities, we might read this and go, oh yeah, they're breaking the law. They're stealing. They're walking through someone else's field and taking their grain. But that is not what they're saying is unlawful. As a matter of fact, one of the great mercies of the law to the marginalized, to the poor and the hungry, where you're allowed to go through someone else's field and grab some of just a little bit of grain if you're hungry okay? You were allowed to do that so long as you didn't have a container that you were filling up to take home, or you weren't using any kind of uh, tool in order to, to get that food. So they were not necessarily breaking the law, except that they were doing it on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day was holy to the Jews, okay? It was based on creation. There were six days God worked, and on the seventh day he rested, and that was the 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 archetype for the Jewish people to always take the seventh day, the Sabbath day, Saturday for them, and rest. Now, it had evolved up to now to where these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they wanted to be sure, remember, they were following the law. They'd become what we call legalists, okay? And they were all about getting it right. So to get this generic keep the Sabbath day holy command right, They needed to define what work was. And so they got down into details that are not necessarily scriptural. They might base it in some obscure passage, but they would take that and they'd make it a rule. And so if you did that, any of these things that were called work on the Sabbath, you were doing something unlawful. And that was what was happening here. There were four kinds of work that were unlawful. were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. And so by plucking the corn, they were reaping. By rubbing in their hands, they were threshing. By flinging away the husks and keeping what's edible, they were winnowing. And simply, since they ate it, we know they had prepared the food. So they were breaking four laws right here. That's what they were saying. So here's how Jesus answered them. He does not get into there. He does many other times. But here, for whatever reason, he doesn't get into addressing what I just addressed. You're you're being nitpicky. You're making stuff up and applying it to these verses and and holding that over people in a way that's not really biblical. He doesn't do that. He goes a different angle, a more condemning one for them. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, that's the temple, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." This is massive, massive statement here. Again, the Pharisees, the most devoted religious people of the day, are confronting Jesus. These followers, new rabbi, and there is a clear, condemning call on Jesus, and these disciples are watching. What do they see him do? He takes them back. He takes these Pharisees back to a well known story in 1 Samuel 21 with their hero, King David, who was anointed king, but he wasn't king yet. Saul was still king. Saul was angry that David was taking his spot, threw a spear at him. David's running. He's got his little ragtag group of loyalists. And they are fighting for their lives and they're hungry. They come to the temple and they come in and they ask for the bread of presence. Twelve loaves that are baked once a week, I believe, and put out, and only the priests can eat it. By the law, it's in Leviticus, it's by the law. But they did give him his anointed as kingness. I made that up. His anointed as kingness and his men's hunger, the need, trumped the law starting with those priests who did it, all the way up to and including these Pharisees. They would never condemn David for that. And so he says, you don't condemn him and you're condemning me. He's, he's saying, someone greater than David's here. You don't condemn David, you don't condemn me. That Sabbath, that's mine. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says that this was massive statement of jesus that he was claiming godhead here he was claiming he was god because the sabbath is god's god made it for him for his people to honor him and he says it belongs to me and if you go over to matthew there's this other little phrase i always thought somewhere in one of these accounts it said that jesus said i'm greater than one greater than david here didn't say that it says one greater than the temple is here He's claiming he's higher than the temple of God, that he's higher than their hero David, that he is God. This was a massive statement. I can guarantee you his new followers were astounded. The Pharisees, we'll see how they reacted here in this next Sabbath story. It says, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. He's he's picking a fight. you just got to understand what he's doing here. He knows what they're doing. They may have brought this man that they knew into the synagogue for this reason. Because it says they were looking for a reason to accuse him. And, of course, there's some healings that are allowed on the Sabbath day, but there's others that aren't urgent, where life and death isn't in the balance, that are not, if it can wait till Monday, it must. That's work. That's work. So they were setting him up. So he knows this, he says. He says, get up and stand up in front of everybody. We're not doing anything covert here. I'm going to make my point. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, What's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all. What's the answer to the question? He looked at them all. Every single one. Waiting for an answer. Before he then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. Here's their reaction. But they were furious and began to discuss with one one another what they might do to Jesus. So the point of these two stories is to show that Jesus considers considers himself to have the right to, to act with sovereignty, with authority. I know what's right and wrong, even if it goes against what you think is right and wrong. I know what the Bible intends, even though you're using text to condemn me. I, You look at me, followers, I'm the new authority. This would be so difficult to do. It reminded me, back when I was in elementary school, there was this, uh, of course, all our elementary schools have a gym. Our gym doubled as the, had a stage for the, for, you know, for the things you do on stages. And, uh, and so he goes, around the side, there's this door, big metal door that says, do not enter authorized personnel only. From kindergarten to fifth grade, I, I never knew what was behind that door. Why? Because there's a rule there. And I, I'm just walking by it all the time to go, out to, the, to go out on the playground to do what you do on playgrounds. You know, because we're always going by that door. But I didn't even give a second thought because there's a sign, there's a rule. I'm not breaking that rule. So in fifth grade, I'm helping our janitor, Joe, who's awesome, Joe Garcia. He and I are working on setting up the fifth grade play. And there was something that wasn't standing right. And I said, Joe, I'm going to need something to, 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 to get this. And he goes, follow me. We go down off the side of the stage to that middle door, and he just walks in. I stop as it slam. You know, he's going in because why? because there's a rule and it's right here on the door he comes back and looks at me and goes what are you doing, come on I'm like, okay and I walk in and I get to see what's back there why, why is this okay because I'm walking with the authorized personnel I'm I'm following the guy who probably put the sign there Okay, he knows the intent he knows the reason it's not about the rule, it's about him It's about his wisdom. It's about his reasoning. And so I could put all my attention on Joe and follow Joe and not worry about anything else. Not worry about what anyone might say. You're breaking the rules. That's what's happening here. His new followers, remember, are watching and learning. And what are they learning? They're learning Jesus is the pivot point upon which they discern what's good and godly, what's right and wrong, what is God's will versus man-made religious rules. Do you do that? That's the kingdom that's emerging in Luke. Verse 12, On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So much here. So much here. We're going to get to know some of these guys in more detail as we go. So I won't, I won't, Oh, there's just so much good stuff just in this one little thing. But what I want you to notice is he was calling. So you you wouldn't know because we're only in chapter 5. We're about a year and a quarter or so into the three-year ministry of Jesus already. And he has a band of disciples, these learners, that have signed on to him and are following him in order to become like him. From among that crowd, he chose 12 to come closer to him. Mark says to be with him so that they might... Be empowered and equipped to go out and preach and have spiritual authority. So they are called for special assignment. A disciple is a learner. An apostle is a sent one. Is a sent one, and so that's what is happening here. But here's here's just the, I'm just holding because there's so much in the teaching I want to go through next. I'll just point this out. Jesus prayed all night long before this. Jesus Christ who I just assumed had this little connection with God, depends on prayer to make his big decisions. Luke makes a point. We've already pointed this out, but it comes up all the time, and I'll keep pointing out. Jesus had a prayer life, and it wasn't a fake prayer life in order to be a good example to us. He was limited as a human being, just like us, and so we have the same tools he has too when was the last thing, something was important enough for you to pray all night, to really desire God's voice for? Just powerful. So here's where he goes, and we're going to get into his teeth. The rest of the chapter is a bunch of teaching, overt teaching. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirit those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Again, this is just a little set up for what's to come here from Luke, but there's something I want to know about here. That this power was available for for people could just touch him and he healed them all. But that's just the backdrop here for what's happening next. I don't know how all that works. I want to know. But there it is. So, after this happens, this scene of spiritual, you know, curing happening and and physical healing happening, he then turns to his disciples and says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil, because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So for those of you familiar with the the stories of Jesus and the different gospels, this this is similar to the Beatitudes that we find in the Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's a longer version of what we're getting here in Luke 6. Some scholars say this it's the same thing, it's the same, same speech, just recorded a little differently through the ears of these different guys. Uh, but some say it was different because that one was on the mount. This one was called the Sermon on the Plains, because they went to a flat place. But whether it's the same or not, the the truth, the reality is the same. And that is his teaching here, from here on out, they are bombshells. They are bombshells. They are intended to shock, to be shock and awe for those listening. The standards that this kingdom that he's bringing, that he just demonstrated unarguably with his power so that they would have to believe whatever he says next is shocking and unlike anything they've seen before on earth or in religion. As a matter of fact, it's uh, Barclay in his, he titles this commentary section of his thing. He says, the end of the world's values. That's That's how distinct this is. See, in the world, the poor and the hungry and the sad or the mourning, those that are hated, excluded, insulted, rejected, they are decidedly not blessed in the world, in the religious world and in the world. And those that are rich and that are comfortable, that are well-fed and laughing and spoken well of, they are. That's how the world is. But not in the kingdom of Jesus, he said. We We don't have time to go through each one. That's a great study, and we've done that before. But here, we don't have to take them literally to get the point that Jesus is making here, that Luke is making by recording it here. It's no accident. He calls the 12, then takes them into this crowd, shows this power spiritually, and then looking at his disciples, he gives this list of who the blessed are and who are not in the kingdom. It's totally backwards. He was telling them, we are altogether a different sort of group. Church, are we an altogether different sort of group? And just how different? He doubles down in what he says next. This is how different, how ridiculous, borderline impossible we are supposed to look as Jesus followers. Luke 6:27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. There may not be a more disobeyed, disregarded direct command out of the mouth of Jesus scripture in the whole Bible. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, hit them back. No. That's what our dads tell us. Jesus says, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? In other words, how different are we going to look if we do that? It's reasonable. But we won't be doing our job as the light of the world. Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But you love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Pause. Love your enemies. Then your reward will be great. And you will be identified as kids of God. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Oh, I missed one. Because, this is important, he is kind to the grateful and the wicked. God is. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured. Jesus spends the most time in this little sermon on the plane on what appears to be the most impossible. The one that we are quickest to overlook. No teaching of Jesus demonstrates just how different the kingdom is from the world and from religion than this one. This idea is so ridiculous that Christians disregard it all the time without a second thought with a very convincing defense for why they're doing it. Me included. This one's difficult. Now, there's other important things that we get from those Beatitudes that are Christian. Feeding the hungry, comforting the mourning, clothing the poor, befriending the lonely, defending the weak. These are all Christian values, too, and they need to be done. But for the most part, you get accolades for doing those. You get pats on the back. You get support for doing those. Even financial support. We have whole organizations around doing these things and other social justice measures. And that's good. And that's right. And it's Christian. But could you imagine if we start a nonprofit organization with this text as its charter? This is what we're promoting. This is what we're doing. How many people are giving money to that to do good to the KKK? To. Pray for the success and the blessing of bullies. Of Putin. how, how, How successful would that be? This is difficult. Again, we don't have to get legalistic here to see what Luke is doing. It's not a legalistic rule Jesus is putting forth here. His point is to create a new kind of person. A new kind of group. One that stands out in the world. That will stand out in the world no matter what the world throws out. Here's how N.T. Wright says this. and I thought this worth quoting. He says the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Listen to this. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person. And go ahead and do it. Be a Christian. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person. And do that. You think you'll stand out? Think it'll be a light in the world? The motive for this kind of ridiculous teaching is as simple and unarguable as any you'll find in Scripture. Because God is this way. That's what it says. Because he is kind and grateful to the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. If God didn't love his enemies, he'd have no one to love. Including you. and Including me. When you love someone who doesn't deserve it, you are honoring and demonstrating and making real and visible what God does for you. And what God does for the world. So Jesus is about to wrap up his teaching here. And he finishes with a little string of four humorous teachings. They're, they're We don't usually read it as humor, but all these commentators say this was intended as memorable humor to make these points. They're humorous, but they contain truths of massive importance that these disciples and we will need. Verse 39, he also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. You've heard me quote that last part a lot. But in other words here, he's saying, first of all, don't be like these Pharisees. Because if you do that, you'll just be a Pharisee. You'll think like them. You'll do what they do. You'll end up where they're going to end up. And I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. He's saying you're going to be like your teachers. So if you use them as your teachers, that's what's going to happen. So he's challenging them simultaneously to break out of the box that the Jewish nation had kind of been, you know, learned themselves into. To break out of that and to instead attach, once again, to him as their teacher. To become like him. To go where he's going because that's where he wants them to go. The next little story, that's one. Here's two. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? It's supposed to be funny. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What always struck me about this teaching is, he's not saying don't help each other with our specks. We need that. We need that loving help, but we don't need the judgment that comes with it. And so if you've got the plank of judgment in your eye, trying to help someone with a speck, trying to help them be a little more like Christ, it's just going to hurt when that plank knocks them over the head. That's not the way Jesus wants us to do it. The Pharisees were busy, remember, in their life. They were busy for centuries now. They've been busy fine-tuning what it means to follow the law. Okay, in all these different ways, they're trying to fine-tune it in order to separate themselves from the other nations. They had a term for, they just were this generic. There's us, then there's all them, Gentiles. That there's us and there's two categories, Jews, Gentiles. And so this law is what they use to separate themselves as God's people when their law actually tells the story that they're supposed to be a light to all people. It's in their charter to Father Abraham. You will be blessed and you will be a blessing to all nations. They need to take this, this plank out of their eye. Story three. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. He's giving a whole new way to discern whether you have interpreted Scripture right here. He's giving a whole new way for you to go to Scripture. And see, Pharisees and modern-day Pharisees, we don't want to do that. We want it to be reasonable right out of the text. We need to find a verse. It says it there. Do it. Keep it simple. And just do what it says, right? And just, in the, and then, but he says you have to add layers to that. And one of the layers is you look at the fruit, you look at the consequences of what you're following from Scripture. You judge a tree by its fruit. If it's producing good fruit, that would be anything that's Holy Spirit fruit or Christ like. Anything that's love or life, that, then you need to have a bias towards you got it right. Even if it doesn't sound exactly straight with Scripture. But if it sounds perfectly straight with Scripture, but it brings the fruit of division or isolation or diminishment or guilt or shame, if it brings the fruit of condemnation, if it brings any of that, you need to really question whether you got that right. No matter how right you think you got it, he's bringing in his kingdom a whole new lens through which to affirm whether you're interpreting Scripture accurately. That's how we do it in the kingdom. And then the last thing he says here, the last little of these four little teachings, he says the good, this is where he's saying, look, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's not just out here. It's all about the heart. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So like you, I bet you've met professed Christians or... Maybe you've not met them. Maybe you just heard about them or seen them on TV or seen them represented in movies whose lives seem pretty void of these good works and good words. Their mouths are not full of good things. Their lives are not full of good things. And yet they say this one thing, that I'm a Christian, that that could be qualified as a good thing, but it's not if it's not from the heart. It's not if it's not touching the heart. And on the flip side, I've met people who haven't proclaimed Christ yet, whose mouths are full of goodness and whose lives are full of goodness, even Christ-like things. And I really feel like, combined with this teaching of this, uh, you judge a tree by its fruit, that we have to go, I'm thinking these latter people are closer to Christ than the former. They're closer. You can't call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say he says. It's got to come from the heart. And you can tell how the heart is by the good things that are coming out of the life and by the good words that are filling the mouth." That's what I'm getting here. This is what his kingdom's like. N.T. Wright says the point of this and all of God's work throughout all of God's history is not to create some religious movement full of set-apart religious people per se with lives filled with all kinds of sacred actions and even moral codes which he does want but it's not simply about that it's not about even correct words like calling jesus lord lord it's important to do that but it's not simply about that when it leaves the heart untouched now he's trying to create real human beings the way he designed them way back at the beginning He's trying to restore all that. Jesus came and said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. What was lost? What did sin bring? It brought this death and it brought this destruction. He's inviting people to become truly human in a way that he created them now. Not just to give us a religious set of practices that we can somehow attach to and expect we're going to make it to heaven if we do it well enough. Does following Jesus get us to heaven? Yes, most assuredly if you believe your Bible. But it also brings heaven into you right now. Right now. You start getting to experience that in the midst of all this and all this is hard. It's difficult. We need, we need heaven to break in. We need what Jesus is preaching here. We just ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead as we're wrapping up here to move around the room. Some will be up there in the Balcony and they're just there if, if something's touching you, if you need a touch today interpersonally, these good shepherds want to be there for you. So what hit me this week? I was just like to hit tell you what hit me. I've told you a few things already, but here what hit me is, is contained in the very last teaching of Jesus here on this sermon on the plain. He says this I will show you what he is like, who there's three things here comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice need all three of those okay i'll show you what he's like he's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock when a flood came the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation the moment the torrent struck that house it collapsed and its destruction was complete what hit me on this is just how many people reject Jesus, first of all, without coming to him and hearing him, right? They, whether they've just, they don't want to bother with it, they don't have time, they've, they've met Christians that have turned them off, because sometimes there's a big gap between Christians and Christ. I always say, please do not judge Christ by me. Judge, you know, just go to Christ on his own merits. But I want to live in a way, you and I know, that does attract them to Christ, right? But I know there's a gap. And so it just surprised me, though, how many reject Jesus without actually hearing what he says. But worse than that, or more than that, how many people hear what Jesus says and never really give him a try? Have you ever just tried loving your enemy? Just tried it. Just see, see what happens. Find the worst possible person in your life and do the best possible thing for them. Why not? I don't know why not, but I know why. Because Jesus says those that come to him, hear him, and put it into practice are digging a foundation to something that we need, that I need. This, This world's scary. This world's difficult. This world's surprising and shocking and hard. I need a deep foundation. And so he's saying how we do that is by coming to him, listening to him, doing what he says. That's why we have each other, because we forget and it's difficult. But I want to give it a shot. I need a group of people who will spur me onto that and will help me do that and discover this kingdom that Luke is bringing forth. If you want to know more about that kingdom, let's stand, let's sing, and if you, can, you need to come to any of us about anything, please do.